0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: The Chinese president says the next five years are crucial for building a beautiful China. China and Algeria have vowed to expand cooperation and support each other's core interests. The European Union and the Community of Latin America and the Caribbean states have held their first summit in eight years, with a divergence in political stance you're listening to road today a news program with a different perspective i'm good anna in beijing to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes you can download our podcast by searching road today Chinese President Xi Jinping said the next five years are crucial for the construction of beautiful China, highlighting the importance of building an ecological civilization under socialism with Chinese characteristics. He made the remarks recently at the National Conference on Ecological Environment Protection in Beijing. He said China will work to promote improvements to the urban and rural living environments. President Xi Jinping also said China will rely on high-quality ecological environment and accelerate modernization with harmonious coexistence between humanity and nature. So for more on this, joining us on the line is Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of Professional Association for China's Environment. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, First of all, through this conference, what's your understanding of the current situation in China? How has China committed to green development and environmental protection Contributed to its status as the second-largest economy in the world.
0: Well, I think there are some significant signals actually coming from the president's speech. On one side, China definitely has made a huge progress in terms of improving environmental uh, quality and improving the health integrity of the ecosystems there. And in the meantime, and we still face a lot of challenges there, pollution continues to be a major challenge as throughout well the country. Like air, water, soil—you name it. In the meantime, if you look at the loss of nature, uh, we still we're still experiencing that, and we still need to try to figure out how to make sure mm-hmm. uh, you know the development, economic development, and land use in particular—you uh, know—not really sacrificing the integrity of the, uh, the ecological health there. And of course, we're all living through the climate, intensifying climate change, and so we need to figure out on one side to mitigate. Uh, you know, the emissions, the carbon emissions in particular. In the meantime, we need to figure out how to adapt to the challenges there. And very importantly, I think the president, through his speech, uh, sends a very, very strong political signal that China is more than ever, is really determined to spearhead its steadfast dedication and to improve uh, the environmental protection and fighting climate change, and very importantly, working with the global community to advance the sustainability agenda.
1: Mm-hmm. Extraordinary as the achievements is, but Xi Jinping made an assertion saying that the structural, root, and trend pressures on ecological environmental protection in China have not yet been fundamentally alleviated. So what does he mean based on your observation, and what challenges and Ah, uh, structural root and trend pressures the Chinese are facing today?
0: Sure. I think from a structural perspective, if you look at our energy structure and the coal continues to be the, the biggest uh, fossil fuel you uh, know energy sector, and uh, meaning air pollution remains a challenge as well as carbon emissions there. If you look at the economic structure and the Chinese economy heavily relies on the industrial heavy industry, manufacturing there and meaning the carbon it's carbon intensive as well as you know energy intensive and of course also resource intensive there as well. And so that's more like from structural perspective. We continue to reform our economy, you know, improve the, the you know, sort of shifting away from heavy industries, the pollution heavy industries there, and moving towards more clean technology mm-hmm. as, and services access there. We're still on that journey. And uh, in the meantime, if you look at the, the challenges we're living in today, and, uh, you know, particularly the climate change there, uh, China is suffering tremendously. China is one of the most exposed countries in the, on this planet to climate risk, climate cha- challenges there. So those are all the challenges we are living in. So mm-hmm. we're still in the sort of transitional period of time. And um, so more than ever, we need to continue to gear ahead of the effort in order to shift faster, actually, away from the, the structural, stuck sort of situation, particularly the fossil fuel situation, towards a much cleaner future.
1: Uh, with such challenges you just mentioned, what do you think is the focus of the Chinese government's next step in ecological and environmental protection work? Let me put it in
0: a couple of ways, actually. So China used ecological civilization. We construct, we built ecological, ecological civilization, That is pretty much China's sustainability agenda, but it goes beyond the United Nations 2030 agenda, which is the Sustainable Development Goals there. Mm -hmm. It's much, much longer term. So the two are actually coming together. So if you look at the uh, UN Sustainable SDGs there, so they're very, very specific targets to go to set with the timelines there. So China is using that vehicle to deliver China's commitment at this moment, like poverty alleviation, protecting Mm -hmm. the environment, addressing climate change. You know, we define, you know, sustainable production consumption, you name it, everything in it. But in the meantime, China's vision is beyond that. It's not just by 2030 we achieve sustainability. We need to go way beyond that. That's much longer term there. So, uh. Specifically, I think one particular word actually coming out of this sort of the conference, is synergy. And we realize, actually, yes, we can adjust climate change there. It definitely has a huge synergy to benefit the other sustainable development goals. So policymakers need to make sure when they design the policy incentives, the laws, regulations there, they really need to understand that and capture that as well. One important sort of signal That is the shifting from carbon intensity, total energy intensity and total energy load consumption target, shifting from that towards carbon intensity and Mm -hmm. like a carbon, you know, decarbonization agenda. That's another very important policy shift, actually, to sort of align with what the national agenda there to make sure we're really more focusing on, you know, shifting away from fossil fuels, addressing climate change, in the meantime, delivery clean, you know, blue sky, green land and clear water
1: agenda. Speaking of that, as you mentioned, China sets its goal to achieve peak carbon use by 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2060. In this conference, the Chinese... President also mentioned the commitment to the goal is resolute and unwavering, but the pathway, masters, pace, and intensity to achieve these goals should and must be decided by ourselves, and China will not be influenced or swayed by others. So how do you interpret this statement?
0: It's simple. I think I there are two major signals there. One, I think China assured the rest of the world we made the Paris agreement, a commitment, you mm-hmm. know, uh, thinking carbon emissions and the carbon neutrality with the timeline specific. there. We're definitely moving forward and achieve that. But in the meantime, China is, as the world's largest carbon emitter. So facing lots of sort of challenges at the global level, particularly in the current climate crisis there. So first, John Kerry's visit to China, you know, basically, you know, talking to China about the U.S.-China collaboration, climate collaboration. But if you look look carefully what he's saying there, he's asking China, you know, to do more about, you know, face down, face out of the coal and mm-hmm. reduce the emissions there. So every point you is to China, one side blaming China's current, you know, sort of emission situation. But in the meantime, they, why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? I don't think that's that's the context actually China would like to be in. Rather, China say, wants to really assure the world, we will deliver our commitments. But in the meantime, how we do that, we are going to make the decision because that has to be based on China's specific situation conti- conti- you know, conditions there that's uniquely sort of China specific
1: mm-hmm. As China is gearing up to a stage of high quality development uh, during the National Conference on Ecological and Environmental Protection Xi Jinping emphasized the importance of harmonious coexistence between human and nature So how do you think this philosophy will shape China's high quality development in the coming years? Well,
0: the- the message is very clear, simple and clear now. We all recognize as a human being that it's a species in the ecosystem, in nature. You know, on this planet, our existence and survival and the development totally depends on the health, integrity, and the sustainability of nature, meaning the, the ecosystems. there, right? We need to respect that. We already suffered tremendously over the years, of the centuries actually, because we've been not really paying attention uh, to the health of the nature. We end up where we are today. So that's a clear understanding, a simple and clear message that has to be respected because our lives, our health, our livelihoods, everything depends on nature. That's now put at the core of the national strategy, national thinking, when we plan how we develop our economy, how to advance the transition in the coming decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Changhua, for insights on China's dedication to environmental protection and green development. That's Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of a Professional Association for China's Environment. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us.
0: Hello,
3: my name is Alessandro golombievsky Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please,
4: come to join us.
1: Welcome back to World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping said China is committed to strengthening the traditional friendship with Algeria and advancing the comprehensive strategic partnership between the two sides. He made the remarks during talks with Algerian President Abdel-Majid in Beijing. He said the two sides need to work together on the implementation of important documents on Belt and Road Initiative and other cooperation. Tabong said Algeria welcomes. Chinese business investment in Algeria and stands ready to step up cooperation with China in various fields. So to talk more on China-Algeria relations let's have Victor Gao Chair Professor at Suzhou University Thanks for joining us Professor Gao
3: Thank you very much for having me
1: uh, First of all, what's your major takeaway from President Taobong's visit this time and the joint statement signed by the two countries
3: First of all, the Algerian President State visit to China is a very important event in bilateral relations between China and Algeria. From the Chinese perspective, China attaches great importance to Algeria. Why? Because first of all, it is a very important Arab country, it's a very important Muslim country, it's a very important North African country, and also it's a country which has been very friendly, cooperative with China and China and Australia have many uh, mutual interests and complementary um, uh, development situations. And therefore, I think the uh, greater progress in China-Algerian relations definitely is in both China's interest as well as in Algeria. I've been to Algeria, Mm -hmm. and I've been very deeply impressed by the great nation and the great country. And I truly believe China and uh, Algeria can complement each other, especially when uh, Algeria is becoming increasingly an important uh, gas exporter and uh, possibly a solar power exporter to Europe, especially to France. So I think the joint statement between the two countries after the summit meeting between the two heads of state is a very important occasion for China and Algeria to rededicate themselves to cooperation, partnership, and a uh, uh, mutual uh, understanding of each other, and they want to be a major force for maintaining peace and stability and development mm. in the world of today, which is increasingly uh, turmoil, turbulent and chaotic.
1: Professor... Yeah. Professor Gao, based on your experiences, could you please tell us more about the high points of China-Algeria ties in the past 65 years? As we know, the visit has another significance as China and Algeria are celebrating the 65th anniversary of their diplomatic ties.
3: Well, when we talk about Algeria, uh, one thing which is very important to keep in mind is that Algeria was ruled by France as a colony for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. And the people's desire and commitment to achieve independence uh, among the Algerian people uh, is a legendary uh, situation in modern history. And I think the Chinese people and the Algerian people support each other, and such support and cooperation can date back to the struggle for national independence of the Algerian people And Algeria has always recognized the one-China policy, has been very cooperative with China on major issues that have some relevance to China's fundamental interest, uh, involving China's national interest. And then China has been cooperating with Algeria in a great deal in terms of industrialization, modernization, especially in terms of petrochemical uh, development. We know for sure that in Algeria, there are major reserves, mostly uh, natural gas, deep into the Sahara Desert, which is uh, very inaccessible uh, in terms of geography, transportation, etc. But China has been working with Algeria in full cooperation to help develop the natural resources in in Algeria, which has already become a pillar industry for Algeria's Uh, urbanization, modernization, and industrialization. So I would say the mutual respect between the two countries, the eagerness to help each other and to promote each other and to uh, be very sensitive to each other's core interest uh, is the character of uh, of China-Australia-Algeria relations. And I think the fact that Algeria is becoming increasingly important as a North African country, as a member of the Arab League and as a very important Muslim country, also uh, indicate that these two countries can further close rank in the world of today because they need each other and they can benefit from close cooperation between the two countries.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of the path to modernization of the two nations, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has been a crucial platform for Algeria's partnership with China. So how do you believe this visit uh, will aid in the implementation of the two nations' five-year strategic agreement, inked last year? And what major areas of development and collaboration will be prioritized?
3: Absolutely. I think uh, it is very encouraging to see that Algeria has been uh, fully participating in the Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, brings more than 100 countries in different parts of the world together to uh, enhance connectivity of all kinds, uh, linking countries with other countries to achieve higher efficiency and productivity in terms of cross-border trade. And uh, the fact that Algeria is such an important country on the northern part of uh, Africa and uh, which has uh, major uh, connectivity accesses to not only other North African uh, Arab countries but also into uh, Europe especially through uh, France mm-hmm. and Italy etc. And uh, Algeria has become a major supply of natural gas and other resources to European countries in particular. That means that China and Australia uh, or Algeria can really get their acts together to boost connectivity, not only in Algeria itself, but between Algeria and European countries, but equally, if not even more importantly, to boost connectivity along the northern shore of Africa or the southern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. And I think from the Chinese perspective, uh, there is definitely a need, to build up greater connectivity by roads or by highways or by aviation and by uh, ocean shipping uh, along the northern shore of Africa. And uh, that connectivity will really help generate greater uh, values and productivity and efficiency for the goods and services to be provided by countries like Algeria and other North African countries and also will position them well in the coming years and decades in terms of international competition. And you are talking about international competition across all kinds of things, including exports from Algeria and uh, introduction of talents from different parts of the world into Algeria and modernization, urbanization, and uh, industrialization as we speak. And further, I would say, in the world of today, when energy becomes more and more important, Algeria's uh, exact geographical location makes it much easier and more efficient if Algeria is dedicated to develop solar power because Algeria has a vast amount of solar power, especially in the deep desert in its southern part. And I think uh, China is the leading country in terms of the technologies and the IPRs and the manufacturing capacities of solar power in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think cooperation between China and Algeria can really generate huge amount of benefit uh, in terms of energy uh, sufficiency and also green energy going forward for Algeria.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Gao, for your time and insights. That's Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Sucho University. More to come, the European Union and the community of Latin America and the Caribbean states have held their first summit in eight years with divergence in political stance. You've been listening to World Today. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions and insightful analysis with World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. The European Union and the community of Latin American and Caribbean states have held their first summit in eight years. Leaders from over 50 countries convened in Brussels to discuss crucial issues ranging from post pandemic economic recovery to energy security concerns stemming from the Russia Ukraine conflict but reports show that the summit faced challenges due to diverse political stance. Latin American countries have deleted the paragraphs on the support of Ukraine in their joint statement drafted by the EU, with the leaders advocating a peaceful resolution instead. So will this disagreement impede a fresh start for the two regions? Can they navigate complex issues to strengthen bonds in the upcoming period? To delve into this, joining us on the line is Helga Zeppler Rouche, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. Thanks for joining us. Yes, hello. Helga, how would you characterize the summit after eight years? What prompted the gathering?
4: Well, I think the effort uh, to have a free trade cooperation among very important regions of mm-hmm. the world as such is lordworthy. However, it was um, also very clear that the EU cannot quit the desire to you know, combine everything with an effort to contain China and push the so-called global gateway approach as an alternative. Uh, I think if they would just give up that intention and agree to cooperate with China and the Belt and Road Initiative, it would be so much more beneficial for everybody. But that wisdom has not yet Sunk in, I'm afraid. So I think the whole summit was um, clearly uh, overshadowed, or let's say, you know, the big issue was would they condemn, would they agree in the final declaration to condemn Russia Mm -hmm. for the uh, so called unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine? And that definitely did not happen. So the word Russia was not even mentioned in the final declaration and also there are many issues you know of disagreement for a free trade agreement between the eu and mercosur so that was basically postponed till the end of the year which will make the european farmers very happy because they feel that the approach the eu is taking towards agricultural issue issues is very much at the disadvantage of european farmers so i would say the you know, the outcome is what, you know, I mean, Chancellor Scholz said it was a big success, but he has a tendency these days to call everything a success just to cover things over. So I don't think it was a big success. I think it was a step forward. Important issues were addressed. But I think it's also clear that the present EU uh, leadership and the thinking of the majority of the heads of Latin America and CELAC are quite different.
1: Mm-hmm. Beside the uh, divergence in some political and economic areas, could you please elaborate more on the collaboration part? In what areas will the EU and Central and Latin America community cooperate through this summit?
4: Well, I think they will cooperate on uh, such issues as uh, the so-called climate change Uh, They will uh, cooperate on various investments, which for sure will be taken. So I think it was, um, uh, as I said, a useful beginning after eight years, uh, but not not the kind of takeover the EU would have liked uh, to accomplish.
1: Mm -hmm. EU leaders have stressed that they also want a closer political partnership. So how likely will the European Union achieve such a goal of a closer political partnership with Central and Latin America? What are the challenges?
4: Well, I think that the key difference uh, compared to previous uh, meetings, uh, the Latin American countries, exactly like all the other countries of the global South, have reached a point where they do not agree anymore to be just uh, raw material exporters. But they insist that there is an increase of value by semi-production, semi-finished products, and then exporting those, or even finished products. And I think that that is a completely new, um, new dimension in these discussions. And, you know, while, for example, there was a separate treaty with uh, Chile on lithium uh, extraction. Now, that is uh, obviously a big environmental issue because the people who are concerned about the environment claim that the level of the groundwater is being lowered uh, in a dangerous way uh, through that. So there are many uh, difficulties, but I think the key thing, which I think the... Uh, Europeans have not yet really grasped is that the countries of the Global South, of which CELAC is an important part, want to end colonialism. They want to see a partnership uh, where an eye-to-eye relationship is established. And um, I think that may have some lip service by now from the side of the Europeans, but I have my serious doubts that they comprehend the legitimacy of uh, of that demand
1: mm-hmm. but European Commission president Ursula von der Leyen she mentioned uh, triple challenges that facing <laughs> Europe and Central and Latin America community, that is the COVID-19 pandemic, the economic problems after the pandemic, the impact of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, and China, which she believes China is increasingly confident internationally. Do you think there is a common ground or consensus, or to what extent will they reach a common ground or consensus on these so-called triple challenges?
4: Well, I think that the uh, effort, basically, was by the Europeans to have a damage control. Um, For example, the Dutch Minister, President Rutte, uh, admitted that in the past decades uh, the Europeans were pretty arrogant, uh, that they did not go to the phone when somebody called. uh, And now, um, basically, you know, where the Europeans uh, need these countries uh, that they have to accommodate and, and, and really raise up. So, you know, I think that that is uh, definitely the case and um, the 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 problem is that the um, you know, the Europeans have to make a, a, a big jump in the learning curve. What is going on in the dramatic changes where, you know, colonialism and Uh, imperialism are are being rejected and it came even the demand at the summit for uh, reparation. Uh, I think the head of CELAC mentioned that the slave trade and you know other damage which was done to the countries of Latin America uh, that they require um, repair you know like uh, for the damage done which naturally was rejected and is completely uh, not not accepted at all, but I think this shows the rifts and, you know, in order to come over that it would really require to make a mental step and say, we give up geopolitical thinking mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, why cannot the EU cooperate with China in the necessary projects in Latin America, mm-hmm. like the two oceanic uh, uh, project, for example, or other major infrastructure projects which would open up the whole continent for real industrial development. These projects are so big that, you know, for the United States, Europe and China to work together uh, would be the way to address it. And that would be in the very much expressed interest of countries like Argentina, Brazil or Mexico, who have where the heads of state have spoken along these lines before. So I think that that you know, hopefully, since the Mercosur uh, EU treaty is postponed till the end of the year, there is still time to to change a couple of attitudes and make it a really worthwhile project. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks, Halga, for your analysis. That was Halga Zaplaruša, founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. This is Ro Today. We'll be back.
3: Hello,
5: I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China, and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
1: You're listening now. Wrote today. A Chinese envoy has called for true multilateralism in the governance of artificial intelligence. China's permanent representative to the UN described AI as a double edged sword and said China supports the central coordinating role of the UN in establishing guiding principles for AI. Zhang Jun said whether AI is good or evil depends on how people utilize and regulate it and manage development and security. So for more on this, Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihu Institute. So talking about the AI governance, China's UN ambassador
6: Zhang Jun said China supports a central coordinating role of the UN uh, establishing the guiding principles for AI. So what do you make of it and why multilateralism is so important in it?
5: Well, today, it's all about standards. When you had uh, one entity like the US holding the advanced position in technology, uh, they could more or less just decide what the world was going to uh, do. Uh, But as you move forward, for instance, with 5G, um, it's all about the standards because you need interoperability. That means that if I'm using uh, 5G in China, I should be able to use it in Africa, Middle East, Europe, America, wherever. Mm. So... At this point, especially with AI, there needs to be an understanding of the information uh, that is out there, making sure that it's marked as primary information if it's in fact primary. Because the problems with AI is when they create new content and feed that into the system, they end up basically feeding on their own content and eventually they go the equivalent of crazy.
6: So what do you think the international community can do on this?
5: Well, it's it's one way in which you can uh, start building trust. Um, there are a lot of concerns. Uh, right now, everyone says there's security concerns, as if it's about uh, one country versus another. But the concerns are really the same. Uh, if you go to the US, Europe, or China, or anywhere else, the concerns about uh, large social media sites, AI, are exactly the same. They just, they don't want them to be used for uh, bad purposes. They don't want them to have, you know, dangerous side effects, etc. So it really is necessary for the world to act together because mm-hmm. that way you can still maintain uh, this global uh, web where people can learn and, but s- surf safely with the knowledge that the information they're getting is correct.
6: And AI is described as a double-edged sword. How would you evaluate the significance of the AI revolution we're seeing today?
5: I think people' initial reaction to AI when they uh, when they became aware of it was that this was HAL from 2001: um, A Space Odyssey that uh, somehow it would uh, take over the world um, with the best intentions, or basically go crazy as uh, HAL did, or um, you know these other movies where you have you know. Uh, terrible things happening because AI takes over the world and starts a nuclear uh, disaster. Um, You know, AI at this point is still a tool. It it does not recognize itself. It's not self-aware. Is there a point where it could be? Yes. Would that represent a danger to humanity? Yes. But all the more reason to have a united approach and understanding to how this works. Otherwise, if I don't want to be If I don't want to play by the rules of uh, China, U.S. or Europe, I'll just simply go to some country where they don't care or don't even understand what it is that I'm doing, uh, and thereby uh, create and then launch something that could be very detrimental to everybody.
6: Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the regulations of AI, what should be the regulatory focus and what social and ethical issues do we need to consider?
5: If you start looking at it from an information side, Where you're, you know, and you can um, identify primary information, reliable information. um, You can then have a much greater effect because the it's the data that the AIs feed on. They cannot, you know, you don't create an AI and it knows everything. It has to be trained. And that training is on these massive data pools. The bigger the pool is, the more interesting uh, the learning experience can be, and the more uh, potentially the more things that the AI can do. So controlling the information is is probably necessary. The trade-offs, of course, are privacy. Uh, you're going to have a situation where uh, the government is going to know a tremendous amount about what you spend, uh, what you spend it on. Uh, they're going to know whether you're uh, truthful and honest based on your actions. You know, if you pay back your loans, the good part of that is, you know, somebody um, who cheats people, um, they will not be able to continue cheating people because their their record will be known to everybody. So on a social basis, it's good, but on you know, there's always this fear that uh, somehow this will be used in some way um, that is against a personal interest.
6: Mm-hmm. And how will AI and automation impact the economy overall? Will AI widen the economic divide, leading to greater income or wealth inequality, or not?
5: Well, it, it very well could. I mean, it's a, it's a tool. We've talked extensively about how it can replace. Um, you know, white collar workers, uh, anything that involves gathering information and summarizing it uh, could be done by an AI, as long as it's able to differentiate between true and um, knowledge and, and facts versus something that isn't. Um, but, you know, this, this issue about where it goes uh, from there is, we don't know. Uh, and there could be uh, some very, very serious effects. Now, in the past, You know, there was the same uh, reaction when they had the Industrial Revolution and that gave way to the Information Revolution. Every time we we change what we think we know, we always imagine that everything's going to go very badly. But labor uh, and people and demand is very fluid. And it tends to flow to wherever it's needed. Uh, Remember that AI can be a tremendous productivity booster. Mm. You're not putting in any very few hours of man time could result in massive um, increases in productivity. Now, that productivity doesn't need to be given to the machines because they don't need to be paid. Mm. (laughs) So it can be distributed to people. So it could result in what people have talked about, a shorter work week. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people have more leisure time. And during that leisure time, they're in consuming services. And those services are which drive a large part of the economy because the basic economy, farming, uh, clothing, all of these things can be done um, cheaply and efficiently uh, by machines.
6: Mm-hmm. And of course, AI will take some jobs of human beings. So how should the society manage the transition for those displaced by AI and automation?
5: I think there's a very simple rule uh, or uh, guidance that uh, countries should be looking at. And that is those countries that prepare their workers for the transition will do well. Those who don't, won't. Mm
0: -hmm.
5: Uh, There's a different set of skills that are going to be necessary as you go forward. It's not a one-time deal. Uh, Today, uh, if you talk to people in human resources, the average person who's graduating from college today won't have one career. They won't have two. They could have four or five. So there's gonna be increased emphasis on learning how to learn, how to be critical, how to be problem solvers. Uh, And by problem solvers, when you have a tool like AI, the important thing are the questions that you're asking. And the questions have to be based on an understanding over over, about the overall situation, having an in-depth knowledge, and then being able to use tools like AI to move things more quickly. So uh, education is really uh, the key here, Uh, running around and saying, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do with these people? That's not going to solve anything. Mm -hmm. You have to really think about what is uh, necessary next and then get people uh, trained in that direction.
6: Mm -hmm. And for global competition, how will the international landscape change as countries compete in the race to AI dominance?
5: Well, unfortunately, this goes back to one of your early questions about uh, divisions, uh, especially economic ones. Mm. Uh, the countries who lead, they're going to accumulate a lot of uh, intellectual property and that it will be very, very valuable. And you'll create this haves and have not of uh, you know technology that's very dangerous. It destabilizes the world, It puts one country above another. Uh, I think China has been very clear, especially in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, that they're willing to jointly uh, develop technology to avoid this kind of pitfall. Uh, The idea of keeping technology sounds very attractive because you can say, well, I can charge whatever I want for it, but it actually doesn't work out in the long term. It is better to have a shared sustainable future. That for everybody, and I think this, the, these are a lot of the principles that uh, China has been pushing. And by putting them into practice, I think it serves as a, an example of how it goes forward. Uh, the U.S. and European model is, you know, own it and you extract as much value as you can. But that model hasn't worked well. It's resulted in even um, wider economic disparities within their countries as well as globally. So it's something that uh, countries need to uh, talk about. And once again, it's something where they need to come together and re- have a, a real respectful discussion about this.
1: That was Einar Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihu Institute. Stay tuned for more updates on global affairs with World Today.
5: Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the Independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening.
1: You are listening to Road Today. A recent report by the OECD reviews that wages for many Europeans have declined since 2019, while American wages surged by 6% during the same period. The study shows the COVID-19 pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine conflict further impacted European economies, leading to a 1% decline in private consumption. The average EU country now is poorer than most states in United States. He also states that as Europe's export industry has been struggling due to global economic slowdowns and a surging energy prices, the gap between Europe and the U.S. economy has widened, with Americans facing less inflation and enjoying a higher standard of living. Experts warn that without corrective measures, income disparity between the U.S. and the European Union could reach alarming levels by 2035. So, for more on this, let's bring in Mike Basting, Senior Lecturer at Southampton Solent University and a visiting professor at the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hello. First of all, in light of the recent OECD report on the comparison between Europe and the United States, what are the underlining factors that have contributed to this gap based on your study?
2: Well, obviously, you've alluded to the, 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 the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I think we'll come on to that. Also the mm-hmm. pandemic. But I, but I think that the key factor, the most important, is the the dominance of the uh, American uh, technology companies, so the European technology landscape is really dominated by possibly the three biggest companies in the world, most valuable brands, That's Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. So Europe really does lag behind when it comes to technology. Furthermore, seven, the seven largest tech firms in the world, by market capitalization, they're all American. There are only two European companies, uh, ASML and, and SAP, sort of age old companies. Uh, and, and European technology giants, are often acquired by american companies as well so microsoft for example bought skype going back a few years so i think the technology landscape is probably the, the key underlying factor more than any other it also looks ominous for europe when it comes to the development of the ai industry that that, that is increasingly likely to be dominated by the americans and also the chinese so technology technology landscape.
1: Another set of data from OECD and World Bank shows in 2008, the U.S. economy was 10% larger than that of the United States, but in 2022, the US is 50%. Percent larger than the EU without the UK. An article from the Financial Times suggests Europe's dependence on the United States for technology, as you mentioned, energy, capital and military protection is undermining any aspirations of the EU might have for strategic autonomy. Do you think it has a point?
2: I think it's a very, very good point. Yeah, I've looked at that article and many similar articles and I think that there's a lot of um, very, very clear information. It's not really an opinion. Uh, And as I said, the technology sector is a very, very key sector. And and the the American dominance is is really has a stranglehold now over Europe. So so I think that this is a a very, very fair point. I think one other point that needs to, to come out that's actually in this article as well is the the fact that leading universities, which are often you know the, the sort of um, the, the pipeline, yeah, they sort of plant the seeds for technology startups, and generally point to a richer, healthier economy. These leading universities, according to world rankings, are mm-hmm. dominated by the U.S. Very few EU universities make the top 30. For example, I think it's just one. Um, the U.K. We've got Cambridge and one or two others do a bit better but increasingly you know these these always have been dominated by u.s universities and increasingly asian and chinese universities like Tsinghua and peking university Uh, They make the top 30 and have done for a while. So I think that is perhaps most concerning as well, because as we know, education really is the the lifeblood of any economy.
1: Mm -hmm. Mike, let's talk about another factor mentioned by the OECD report, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, which I believe has had substantial impacts on European economies. How would you compare the economic impact of the Ukraine crisis on the United States and the European Union?
2: Well, it's a very significant difference. Obviously, b- before we go on to the, the, the energy price situation here in Europe, the shale revolution in America uh, now means that America is the leading or the largest producer of oil and gas. So that, that the implications are clear there. Energy prices in Europe have soared. Obviously, the loss of cheaper Russian gas with the conflict uh, and, and European industry has really uh, fail to really sort of capitalize or catch up on that and typically European industries are paying three or four times more for their energy than their American competitors so the, the, the gap is really stark and alarming and, and something that doesn't look as though uh, there will be any resolution in the short term this conflict does appear to be uh, not, not ending in the, in the short term so yes very very different impact.
1: Then, with the European facing such challenges, the global economic slowdowns, energy cost surges, and the dependence on the United States, how can European countries diversify their economies and mitigate economic vulnerabilities?
2: Yes, I mean, that, that, that is an issue. Many would argue that Europe are, are perhaps obsessed with regulating, regulation, and not creating wealth. So maybe a sort of philosophical change to wealth creation rather than industry regulation. However, there are some bright spots so that European countries and European economies can build on areas where they do lead, they do outperform, and typically what we call lifestyle industries is a real success story in Europe. So building on those um, industries and those brands uh, when it comes to luxury goods, luxury fashion, European companies dominate, particularly France and Italy, all the most popular sport dominated by European teams, tourism, uh, two-thirds of the world's tourists are heading to European destinations. So I think it's building on those success stories where you does have a competitive advantage uh, that will strengthen European position. That said, uh, they're always right to acquisition and acquisitive American and Asian companies as well, as we see in the football industry. So I think it's building on those lifestyle industry where Mm. europe does have a competitive advantage
1: indeed thanks mike that's mike basting that's all the time for this edition of world today thanks for joining us
0: hello everyone this is zoon emet khan currently based in chinkwa university World Today is an excellent initiative to discuss current affairs by including experts from across the globe. I've always enjoyed our thought-provoking discussions and wish the team even more success and impact in the future.